All right, Pete Giuliano, it's Saturday, May 16th, 2015. That makes this solder smoke 176. Yeah, 176. All right, very good, Pete. Thanks for joining us this morning once again. The West Coast component of the solder smoke team. First, I think we should begin with bench update because I I have heard, Pete, some rather disturbing rumors that there's been a release of magic smoke oh, yes, in the yes. Newberry Park, California laboratories. Yes. No, I, I think of Newberry Park right up there with Menlo Park. <laughs> That's the highest steam that I hold you uh, yeah. But, I mean, I'm sure even Thomas Alva Edison occasionally released some magic smoke. So tell us the sad story, Pete, because our listeners love to hear about this kind of stuff. Yes, uh, I, will, I will share my tales of woe with you, Bill. Well, first of I should mention that uh, I, in a, in a trade of some hardware, I managed to acquire two RF bricks that came out of the Atlas 210X uh, single sideband transceivers. And uh, one of the uh, one of the bricks, uh, and by bricks is someone not familiar with that. That's the RF amplifier stage, and it, it looks like a brick. It's about the size of a brick. It's the heat sink, and it's the RF amplifier board. Uh, one of them had a set of bad transistors in it, which didn't bother me because it was the brick and the heat sink and everything else that was really important. The other one had a had an operating set of transistors in it. And uh, several podcasts ago, we talked about the Belthorn 3, and I took one of those bricks, and I got a uh, communications concept low-pass filter and installed it in a small chassis, and now the Belthorn 3 is a 100-watt transceiver. So I, I was really excited about that. Uh, the other day, I wanted to run a few tests. So I said, you know, good practice. Put it into a dummy load, Pete. You know, the, the dummy in, engages the dummy load. Only the dummy didn't do that. <laughs> I, I have a switch where I can connect to antennas or to the dummy load, and it's about, uh, I think it's a six-position switch. So uh, I have the dummy load in position number four. I thought I moved the switch down to position four, but I didn't quite have it engaged, so I had an open circuit. So when I went... It wasn't, it wasn't an operator problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, was, it was an equipment failure. That switch should have clicked. <laughs> well, it was an operator problem. So anyway, I, uh, I hit the tune button on the Belthorn 3, and the little screen says tune. I looked at the output uh, meter that I have in line, and for a short while I got uh, normally where I have it set uh, for 100 watts. It was uh, full peak power, and all of a sudden went down to nothing. And I said... Uh-oh. And then there was a puff of smoke. <laughs> I said, uh-oh, that is not good. And that sickening aroma. Yeah, yeah. I smoked the resistor, but I smoked the finals, too. Oh. So, so I went I went over and um, checked, the, uh, checked the switch uh, to see if there was something uh, amiss there. And sure enough, I heard it click into position. So it was into an open circuit. Okay, so I, I smoked a pair of finals, and, you know, despite being somewhat cautious about not wanting to put the signal on the air, I'd been better off to just put it into an antenna, <laughs> and I'd, I wouldn't have smoked the finals. You know, this is a, you know, some people in the QRP community say, will say that this is the uh, the radio god. Got even, yeah, got even. Displeasure with your yeah, got even. QRO-ness. Yeah, got even, they got even. 
So, oh my so, so anyway, here here's an interesting story, and actually this goes back to to several podcasts ago when you were having some problems with the EB sixty three. So I right. so I called uh, RF Parts, which is actually quite close by. We're maybe one hundred and fifty miles from here, so you know, kind of UPS is overnight uh, sort of thing. And I talked to Merritt, and uh, I think he's involved with the ownership, but he's also the technical guru. And so I said, yeah, I have this Atlas uh, 210X and uh, prick, and I said, it's got the uh, CD245. I said, what what should I put in there? And so he told me the uh, appropriate set of transistors, which happened to be an MRF 453. Uh, you don't have to put the A version there. Put the 453 in a, a match pair is about 60 bucks. So uh, he says to me, oh, he says, we used to work on those all the time <laughs> down here. And he said, there's no RF feedback. There's no RF feedback on those bricks. And he said, if you happen to run it into a short circuit or an open circuit, you're going to smoke the finals. <laughs> I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> So, uh, good case in point, uh, it was a great plan of mine to to take some of these bricks and uh, just uh, put it on a little chassis and use it for an RF amplifier. But uh, today's practices uh, really come into the forefront. So, if you're going to do anything, make sure if you get one of these old bricks out of an old transceiver, put put a couple of... um, uh, some some feedback uh, components in there, and you, you save yourself a lot of grief. I mean, for probably a uh, dollar's worth of hardware, uh, I, I could have saved sixty dollars by by not, you know, going through the process of you know, I, the finals. I had never really thought of that. I mean, I always think of the feedback network as part of just you know, kind of gain flattening and uh, and uh, trying to control the uh, to control the gain of the of the of the transistor stage. But I guess you're right. If you had that. Kind of collector to base feedback. If you didn't have any load there. There'd be a heck of a lot of feedback, and it would shut it off. Thing down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Think things you've learned from from our mistakes. So, er, you know, this is not the first time I've left smoke out. I, I try not to do it on purpose, and I try to be a little careful. But here was a case where I didn't hear the switch click, and it was an open circuit, and so it was my fault. So well, there you go. But then you learned about this, uh, this the, the the additional benefits of the feedback yeah, amplifier. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Allison, Allison was sending me when I was suffering with my uh, EB63A a problem. She sent me a lot of good ideas for feedback circuits, which I will pass on to you. Yeah, cool. Words of wisdom from 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 Allison. So uh, I think that'll yeah. that'll help you out. Yeah, I, I I put it directly into the dum, dummy load when when I yeah. when I retested uh, putting in the the MRF 453s and it works perfectly. So I'm not going to uh, put it on the air until I get the the feedback network in there. You just you never know what's going to happen. You know, you could be something as simple as the antenna lead break. You know that you're yeah. not aware of it. You have the switch in the in the right position and it, and it doesn't work. So. You know, anything can happen. It's just scary stuff. <laughs> yeah. This is why they call it amateur radio, right? Keeps <laughs> it interesting. Yeah. All right, but listen, on a more positive note, I know you have been having some really major progress yeah. uh, on your the new rig, yeah. the new... The new rig out there, and I'm working on the similar one here. So I, I think, but you go, you go first. Tell hey. us about your Tia rig. Yeah, but before I do that, I want to I want to share with the podcast listeners because uh, this has been on the bench too. Is I have a new website, and the the website is uh, my call sign www.n6qw.com, 
And uh, as a matter of fact, this leads right into the TIA because the background picture on that website is the TIA, uh, essentially the TIA mainboard. And um, we should explain about TIA. Yeah. yeah. Okay. T- because it sounds like it sounds to me in Spanish it sounds like the ant. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There you go. Your ant. What our podcast, what our podcast listeners can't. Aunt Mary. Yeah. Aunt Mary's amplifier. Yeah, yeah. No. What? What? Yeah. yeah. What? What? Our podcast listeners can't see, and I can't see because we're on the Skype here. Bill is talking with his hands. So I got, I got, the, yeah. I got the whole story. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. Tia is an acronym for. Um, Transit. It's termination insensitive amplifiers. Termination insensitive amplifiers. Yeah. You mean that's not that's not some some sort of personality disorder? No, Termin- no, I don't. I don't think so. I I heard that somebody somebody I knew had that problem. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> okay, the term- well, I guess it has a technical meaning yeah, too. Correct. Termination right? insensitive right, amplifiers. Actually, this is uh, the work of Bob Kosky, Kopsky and uh, Wes Hayward. And uh, following the BIDEX uh, project, they came up with these uh, termination and sensitive amplifiers. And uh, uh, Wes has long maintained 50 ohms in, 50 ohms out for all the circuit blocks. It's it's so easy to handle, and uh, you know where you're at. And so if you plug a filter uh, after the amplifier and before another amplifier, you're, you're liable to have all kind of varying impedances. And you always want to have going into that, block uh, 50 ohms so it's that's why i call it termination insensitive amplifiers yeah you know this came up when i was uh when i was building i think the bit x 17 i i was trying to get a sense of i think i was trying to measure gain i think i also was looking at the i uh, know that's what it was it was exactly what you mentioned i was trying to figure out how best to match that homebrew crystal filter to the two amplifiers, the two bidirectional amplifiers at either end. And I kept trying to calculate what the impedance should be, the input impedance for, the, for those amplifiers. And I was having trouble with it. And, I mean, I, I came to, I, I, in the end, I concluded that it was about 150 ohms, and I, I, I built some uh, transformers based on that. But when I talked to Farhan about it, he he was the one, I think, who, who really advised me to, to, to future think about termination insensitive amps. He said, you know, next time you really should look at those because, as you say, the advantage is, look, on the, on the regular bid X, what the input impedance is very dependent on what's hanging on the other end of the amplifier. So they're, they're transparent. They're not termination insensitive. But this, the beauty of this circuit, because you said come up by, come developed by Wes and, and Bob, is that it doesn't matter what you have hanging on the other end. It's still going to look like 50 ohms right. on the other side. Very important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think there's another uh, key element here that makes this uh, very desirable, and I should tell you that when I first built it, that there, there is a reference article, and, Bill, you had it up on the on the blog. matter of fact, yeah. that's where I download, downloaded it. There is a reference article. So in kind of in my haste, I... I took the picture of the schematic and I said, oh, okay, yeah, here, put these parts in there and, and I built it up and I got to tell you, I was underwhelmed. It 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 just didn't seem like it was working too well. So I, I checked all my uh, circuit elements and uh, just to make sure I, I went through my, my troubleshooting process, my internal troubleshooting process and everything was okay. I didn't solder any wrong components in there. Things were not in the wrong place. It just... 
it just it seemed almost deaf. The the basic article uh, starts off with the premise of a 15 dB amplifier, and when I put it in the configuration, that that wasn't enough to make up for the losses of the uh, uh, the balance mixers using SBL ones and uh, the filter and and maybe just haywire connections. So then. I went back and read the article, and you I missed the page. I missed the page <laughs> that says, by the way, you can still have 50 ohms. If you change two resistors, you have a whole range of gains from 15 all the way up to 24. So I think it's 15, maybe 17, 19, 22, and 24, and it's just a two simple resistor changes. Read the manual, Pete. Read, read the, the manual, yes. Read the, uh, I'm going to leave out the middle word there. But yeah, read the yeah, you're right. <laughs> so I set it for max gain, and and that's uh, 24 dB. And the difference in the resistors, the, the basic article is 680 and I think 15 ohms. And if you change that to 1,800 ohms and 4.7 ohms, that's the difference between 15 and 24 so that's 9 dB gain. So across a pair of those amplifiers and a, and a filter, that's almost 20 dB a gain. So it's significant. Well, yeah. When I when I did that, it's it suddenly I'm I'm listening to DX, <laughs> you know, and it it, yeah. it came alive. So I said, okay, I, I'm convinced. So I guess my based on my build. I, I for the transmit side, for the receive side, I would go with the max. Uh, of the 24 dB, which is the 1800 ohm and the uh, 4.7 ohm, um, and you still have 50 ohms on the ends. So that's the other beauty. You you, you can vary the gain without changing the impedance. Uh, on the transmit side, I said, "Hey, that works so good." So I, I made it the same. Too much, too, yeah. too much gain. So I would recommend going with the uh, the 19 dB, which the two resistors are uh, 1k and uh, 10 ohms. Yeah, you know, and this is this is an important consideration. You know, it, it looks like you're building one amplifier, but you're not. In and you're building essentially two, one on top and one yeah. on the bottom. Yeah. And uh, and as as Wes and Bob point out in their article, you can set the gain on the top side different from what you have on the bottom and still retain the 50 ohm in and out. Yeah, uh, and sensitivity, which is, as you said, an important feature. I did the same thing. I have the the receive side is on the top, and I have that one set. I think for the twenty four dB that you mentioned, and on the bottom, I did it you, without even talking about it. We both yeah. kind of reached the same conclusion. Yeah. I put it at nineteen dB, and you're just what you're ch- doing is you're just changing those feedback resistors. There's one feedback resistor that goes from collector to base. And the other is the degenerative feedback resistor in the emitter circuit, and that right. you, by setting those, you get you set the the gain for the whole thing, right. which is really useful. Right, and and that not so we don't mislead anybody. That that made the presumption that uh, in the receive chain you make them both the same, in the transmit chain you make them both the same. The article is specific. You don't need to do that. You could have right. the front end pair be twenty four, right. and the right, back right. end pair you know, be ninety, yeah. depending upon what you need. So, and it's still fifty ohms. So that's yeah. And the other thing is, that this circuit is a little bit different from the uh, the one in the traditional bidex circuit. Now look, if you look at it, you'll notice that in the bidex circuit, the kind of the top amp and the bottom amp 
are not completely separate. There is one resistor that switches in that is common to both circuits. It's it's kind of it's kind of different if you look at it. So, in other words, you couldn't with the regular old bidex just chop off and, and just build the top half or the bottom half because there is a common circuit element there that even though you're applying power to the top, there is a, a circuit there that forms an important part, I think, of the feedback circuit that is in the bottom and vice versa. Whereas this one, the, the amplifiers are, are completely, almost completely separate and could operate independently. In other words, you could just build the top one. And so it, it's, a bit, it's a bit different. Um, I, I really like it. And um, so I'm building one too. But we've got to finish talking about your rig. So what's, what's happening? What, tell us what's going on with okay, this gear so, rig. Okay, so... You know, you, you start building this, got the receiver working. So I said, oh, yeah, this is great. So I said, uh, I wonder what I can do uh, on the transmit portion. Now, uh, we're doing something a little bit different. Uh, you're using a third uh, TIA circuit for, right. for uh, ahead of it for the transmit. Uh, I guess it's the receiver RF amplifier stage, essentially, this, right. and the transmit pre-driver. I, I'm using... Uh, a bidirectional circuit that came out of the that well, I developed this a long time ago, but it's been used and it's in the LBS and it uses a single two N thirty nine oh four in in each leg and it has a couple relays. So um I I ran it through there and then I said, Okay, uh what what can I do with this? So I pulled uh, a board that uses a circuit directly out of EMFRD, that's the two N thirty nine oh four driving a two N thirty eight sixty six and by itself, that's good for three, four hundred milliwatts. So then I said, okay, how would that do with the other solid state amp I, I have? So I, uh, <coughs> I got that all the way up to about 30 watts. So then I heard some guy calling CQ. <laughs> so I said, okay. So I, I didn't even have all the, the relay switching. I just took a bundle of wires in my hand and hit it in the ground and put the thing in transmit and I made a contact with it. <laughs> <laughs> As we always say, those are the those are the sweetest contacts yeah. when everything's sprawled yeah. out in front. Yeah, the guy says, "Gee, your audio sounds really good." <laughs> I said, <laughs> "Well, you know how it's kind of scary when it's all over the bench in three layers." <laughs> yeah, this is how it was. Did your did, Pete? Did your audio have presence? Yes, the audio had presence. He he was, was specific. It hello? Yes. Was it, was it good at the mid range? Yes, he, he said it was really good audio. So I said, "Okay." <laughs> so anyway. Um, it works. It it really works, and and it was with the uh, the nineteen uh, dB gain in the transmit section. So that that to me makes a, a, a big difference. You got to put this one in a box. Yes. Yes. All right. Yes. Box this one up. Yes. This is, actually, I'm I'm really thinking about a box that I have that was uh, used for some other assembly, and it's all screwed together in that, and it's a really heavy-duty box. So uh, it does have a Nokia display on it, though, black and white. Right. Not the color, the black and uh, white. So that, that, right. looks, so pretty, that looks pretty cool. That looks pretty cool. All right. Well, I'm glad progress there. And, you know, I, I really enjoyed this project because I'm working on something very similar here on the, uh, on the East Coast, but with a lot of assistance from, um, from the, the Newberry Park Laboratories. <laughs> Um, so I, I, I wanted to build this. So, okay, this is, this is whole, my, my whole approach on, on this new rig that I'm working on with a lot of, uh, kind of encouragement from Pete and, and from others, I've decided to kind of back away from my radical fundamentalist 
home brewer kind of principles. <laughs> you know, you know, for years I've been, you know, been. I don't want to use chips of any kind. I don't even have voltage regulators in there. I prefer Zener diodes. No LM three eighty sixes. I like to build the three, three transistor audio amplifier, all that stuff. But I said, okay, it's time to change. It's time to do something a bit different. And the the first big difference was, okay, no more VFOs, no more VXOs. I'm going to use the SI5351 that uh, Pete has been promoting. And uh, so once you you do that, once you accept those kind of uh, chips, then, well, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound. It's the tipping point. That's it. You're, you know, you're, you're gone, right? You know, it's, it's a, you forget about a slippery slope. You're completely over the edge. And, um, so then, all right. So then the other thing I decided is I'll use SBL1 mixers because, well, I, I always like those. Those are among my favorite kind of, uh, kind of packaged devices because you can, if you crack one open, you could actually understand what's going on in there. And it's just a, it's coils and diodes just like we do, but, they, they seem to work better than the homebrew variety, we have to admit. And uh, everything is a lot more balanced. I like the nice little package, so we're going to use those. And, hey, wait a second. This is this is another thing I want to tell everybody about. I know this is going to be really shocking. I have a Yesu. A Yesu. Can you imagine? Yes. But not really a Yesu rig. It's a Yesu filter. This rig is going to use, instead of the homebrew ladder filters that we've been playing with, um, Back in 2012, Steve Snortrazen Smith out there, also on the West Coast, sent me a radio care package that included a Yesu Mucin type XF90A um, SSB filter, 9 megahertz, about 2.6 kcs wide, out of an old, I think it's out of an FT7 Yesu. I found some stuff about it on the internet. And, uh, Nice little uh, filter, very small, about the size of the end of your thumb, um, and I have popped it into the um, onto the board between the two TIA amps. So we have this going. So I'm calling my rig the um, the Bidex Digitia. Oh, wow! Digi because of the the SI5351, and TIA because of the termination insensitive amps. So the, I guess the innovations are termination insensitive amps. From Wes with uh, with with a suggestion from Farhan, SBL one mixers both for the uh, for the VFO and the uh, and the BFO, the SI fifty three fifty one for uh, BFO and VFO signal generation, and then here's the other thing. Here's the N six QW element coming in. Um, instead of um, using Manhattan style construction. I'm using a, a style of construction, and I want I want the trademark on this. Even though even though you did all the work and invented it mostly, uh, we're going to call it mill pads. You know, you had Manhattan pads, you had isolation pads, you have ugly construction, you have Muppet. You know, Chuck Adams is doing the Muppet boards. Pete Giuliani, it does mill pads. Mill pads, yes. I mean CNC mill. He's got a CNC mill. $250,000, right, Pete? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, it, it, and, he, and he told me, he said, look, I'm going to send you some of these things, and um, you'll, like, you'll like it. And I said, okay. So uh, the priority box came in the mail. I've been getting a lot of them from Pete lately. I'm very grateful. But this one was really particularly useful. 
because it's got it's just a collection of squares. How many is it? Like eight by eight or something like that? It's a six by eight. Six by eight squares, and they're just just about the right number to build the the two Tia amps. So I got two Tia amps, and there's a set of pads down below that for the SBL1 mixers. I got them there, and um, they fit in really nice. It's <coughs> easy. I don't have my. I'm not soldering. I'm not super gluing my fingers together anymore. Um, and I, I, I really like it, so I, I, I think this is, this is a winner. So I got the mill pads, uh, and oh, I wanted to mention. Now this is kind of a, an, an esoteric hint and kink, to use the old QST terminology. There aren't a lot of people out there who will appreciate this, but there's enough Bidex builders out there, to who will, who will really understand what I'm talking about. Now, when you're building a bilateral amplifier, like we've been saying, you build the top half, which is, you know, you could say that's the receive half, and the bottom half, which is obviously the transmit half. And by switching the voltage, by powering up either the top or the bottom, you send the signal either right to left or left to right. This is the whole bilateral principle. Now, when I built the first two bilateral rigs here, I just really used the Manhattan technique, I pretty much just worked off the schematic that Farhan provided, and it worked out really well. But Pete came up with a better idea. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and he, when, he, when, he, when he told me this, I kind of sat back in the chair and slapped my forehead. I did the hand slap on the forehead like, man, why didn't I think of that? Here's what you do. You build the top part, right? So you got, in, in, you know, on the, on the regular old Bidex, it's just one transistor up there. Uh, on the Termination insensitive, it's a little bit more complicated. You've got three transistors. It's not a big deal. Okay, so you build the three, and now you've got the top part. Then, now, you've got to imagine this. Then you just take the board that's in front of you, and you flip it over. You rotate it 180 degrees. And then, you, using the same pattern that you used before, <laughs> you build the other one down on the bottom half of the board, Right? And so now, by doing this, you've got one circuit that sends the signal from left to right, the other one from right to left, and you have the inputs and the outputs, which connect together on the, uh, on the bilateral circuits. You have them very close together physically, which is what you want. Believe me, it makes construction a lot easier. What I found I was doing now is that if I'm going to put the resistor down in one place on the top, at the same time, I just flip it over and put it at the bottom. So in essence, instead of going through and building one at one stage and then building the other, you end up building both stages at the same time. You see what I'm saying? Part by part. And I, th- I found that that worked out really well. So um, good for, you know, you know, flip those bilats. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the, that's a, the, the, the Giuliano technique. But, but by the um, way, if I can just interrupt a second here, Bill, uh, what's really helpful is I use graph paper. Yeah, and and I did the parts layout in a graph paper to to optimize the layout, and uh, I sent that to you. So that that and I used yeah, that. I used that one. Okay. Yeah. So that let me recommend that to you if you're going to do something, and if you follow the uh, the, the Hayward Kopsky um, schematic, which is absolutely correct, you'd end up with parts all over the board. So if you right. take just a little bit of time and and lay out the ones the top circuit, then I just looked at it and said. I can't follow the schematic and and follow the pad, so I said, "Why don't I just flip it over?" <laughs> so I did, yeah, and it, yeah, and it yeah. works. And it works. You know, and the use of the graph paper is especially appropriate 
when you're using these kinds of boards. These are like I'm, I'm trying to describe it. I, there's pictures up on the uh, on the blog, and there's a couple of videos up on the blog, so you can see what we're talking about. But essentially, it's just a grid with uh, little squares. I guess about the squares look like they're about about third of an inch by third of an inch, something like that. As 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 Pete says, six by eight. And you know, it's a, it's an old technique. I'm sure you saw it. Doug Demore used to do it with a hacksaw. <coughs> yeah, yeah. he didn't ha he didn't have the two hundred fifty thousand dollars CNC mill. <laughs> Doug was was careful, careful with his money. Um, but uh, uh, he used to take a, a piece of copper clad board, and I think with like a miter box or something, take um, a hacksaw and just hack a series of vertical and then horizontal rows, and then you'd get isolation squares, and then he would use that to do what you've done with your CNC mill, a lot, not, not quite so neat. But then that's why the grid, that's why the, um, the, uh, the, the square paper, the, um, what do we call it? Graph paper. The, uh, graph paper. Yeah, there you go. That's why the graph paper is really useful, because then you make the, the graph squares, they correspond to the squares right on the board, and then, then, then off you go. Yeah. Bob, Bob's your uncle. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but by the way, just just to uh, clarify things here, I didn't directly spend two hundred fifty thousand dollars <laughs> for ZNC mill. Uh, here's the story: um, my my son, my youngest son, who's a mechanical engineer, he he designed and built the CNC machine. The two hundred fifty thousand dollars is what it cost me to send him to engineering school. <laughs> that, that's that, that's where that number came from. So in return, he built me a CNC mill. Now, you know, you can actually do this with some uh, equipment that's available that won't cost you an uh, arm and a leg. You can buy from uh, there's a company called Enco that sells uh, machine tools. They have what's called an XY table. And and this is this is a mechanically driven table that you bolt to a top of a drill press, uh, the uh, you know bench operated drill press. And what you can do is you can put your circuit boards in there, and you can move increment at X and Y. So the board will physically move around because the uh, X Y table is stationary. And then you can get just an engraving bit, and you can hand make those those boards. Oh, so so it's about like uh, it's. It's like around a hundred dollars for the XY table and a few bucks for the engraving bits. So I mean, you can do it by hand if you want to. But the beauty of having the CNC machine, I, I made Bill a couple of boards. One, one I made it with really small squares, and Bill says, "Man, that looks good." Like, yeah, like I built mine with the small squares. I said, "Bill says, so all I did is go into the program, and say scale it." So I made it one and a half times, and then cut the board. <laughs> so that's the that's the beauty of the scale it up for a two feet too large. Yeah, yeah, so I scale yeah, it, it up. really big. Yeah, scale it up. I'm like I'm like it's like a large print or the big crossword <laughs> yeah. puzzle puzzle. Yeah, but, but anyway, um, but the that's really really cool, and I'm glad to see you here that we don't have to spend two hundred fifty thousand dollars each. To... <laughs> no, no, no. But that's what it cost me. Hey, um, the other thing I did on this thing, and I, I, I have it in my hand right now, the uh, the board with the with the filter. I put the two uh, SBL1 uh, mixers in uh, this morning, one for the VFO, the other for the BFO, and I was really pleased to finally be able to install the famed W6JFR mod to the SBL1 yeah, mixer. Yeah. 
W6JFR, you guys might not recognize the call, but it's, uh, it's uh, the same, the one and the same, Pete Giuliano out there in Newberry Park. Um, and one day I was looking through um, uh, uh, experimental methods, I think it was chapter five, and um, there was the chapter on, um, on balanced modulators. And in experimental methods for RF design, they're talking about how, you, how people have successfully used the SBL1 as a balanced modulator, but uh, Pete came up with a really neat innovation because you could take, you could put your audio in on pins three and four from the mic amp, but then if you, uh, normally you would connect pins five and six, but if you don't connect them and instead put a 100 ohm pot between those two terminals, it gives you this really beautiful little balance feature. And you know, if you, what fun is a balanced modulator if you can't balance it? You know, yeah, you got to be able to do yeah. that. You got to. Yeah. It's like you know, <laughs> it's like a car without a steering yeah. wheel. It doesn't, you know, it just doesn't work. So I have it there. There it is. Look, oh, look, Pete. Oh, there it is. Beautiful. A beautiful little oh, pot. Yeah, beautiful. And I can't wait to 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 balance and unbalance that 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 balanced modulator. So I was really pleased to do that, and it was really fun to look into experimental methods. And uh, and I've seen it. I've seen it before. We've talked about it before here on the on the podcast. But this is the first time I built one, and using the N6 QW boards, just just great stuff. There's a there's an additional piece to that. Uh, if you take one of the pins, either five or six, and put a 39 ohm resistor uh, there and let that float, and then if you want to use that as a tune function, you just put that 39 ohm resistor to ground. And that unbalances it, so you have a, a RF going through the system for tune-up. So that, you know, there's lots of ways of producing a signal to tune-up for tune-up. One of them is to unbalance. And this is an old idea. <laughs> they did this a long, long time ago. Early I know. On, I early know. on. Early on. Well, you know, and I, I when I put this up on the blog a while back. There were a couple of folks who came in and said, well, you know, uh, that technique was uh, known back in uh, the 30s, and it's nothing new. But your innovation was to do it with the SBL1. Yes, yes. With the little metal box there that doesn't seem to be at all modifiable. Yeah. But, but that's your mod. So, and that's why it merited mention in experimental methods. Not an easy book to get into, by the way. Yes. Oh. <laughs> uh-uh. But anyway, I thought that was, that was pretty cool. Uh, hey, listen, Pete, I wanted to ask you, and I was looking, you sent me some pictures of your TIA board, and I noticed that next to your... Um, your balance pot that you have there on, on the SBL1, it looks like you have a little low-pass filter there, too. Yes. What's that for? That, that's a audio. That's an audio low-pass filter on, off okay. the 3 and 4, and it's a, a 10 nanofarad either side of a 1 millihenry choke. Where does that cut it off? Uh, in the audio range. All right. All right. Oh, so it's just, just, it's just, just to, keep it to keep it to audio. Yes, because okay. the... Two products you have coming out of the uh, the product detectors, oh, essentially yeah, 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 yeah. the yeah. IF and the BFO and the audio. Right, 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 right. Okay, great. All right, I'll, I'll, I'm going to put that in there too. All right, now you know. I think enough of, enough of the bench reports because we've got a lot to report about. But we have to tackle. Uh, we don't like controversy here on the podcast, no, Pete. No, no, we don't like controversy. But when we do tackle controversy, we do it. Tongue-in-cheek. So tongue-in-cheek, we're going into tongue-in-cheek mode right now. It's time to enter Area 5351. You guys have heard about Area 51 out there. 
That's where they have the uh, the UFOs that we captured out there near Roswell, New Mexico. Everybody knows about this. It's on the Discovery Channel just about every week. <laughs> um, the cons- it's it's conspiracy theory zone. It's um, you know um, uh, all this stuff, um, urban legends, myths, conspiracy theories. We're now in Area Fifty Three Fifty One. And this has to do with the myths, conspiracy theories, and urban legends involving what, Pete? The SI-5351, phase noise, phase noise, phase noise. The, The most feared component in ham radio. Feared by designers all across, well, the Internet. Um, Again, we're in tongue-in-cheek mode here, but one thing... Pete noticed it first, and then I, I have noticed it. There seems to be a lot of kind of anxiety about the use of the 5351 in actual rigs. Pete has, and, and a couple other guys have been leading the charge. Tom Hall's been involved. Jason, of course, has been involved. And um, I think we're, we're all getting, all seeing good results. But, but what will happen is somebody on one of the mailing lists will mention hey, I heard there's a phase noise problem. And then somebody else will say, oh, having, only having read that, they'll say, oh, there, no, there's a phase noise problem. And then the next thing you know, everybody will be sort of writing off the use of the chip because of phase the noise. phase noise yeah. problem. Then the other problem was bleed over. These things all sound terrible, do they? Sound, they, almost as, they sound almost as bad as termination insensitivity. Yeah. My God, you've got termination insensitivity with bleed over and phase noise. <laughs> but um, the, the, the bleed-over problem is that you've got, you know, you, you basically got three clock outputs from the 5351. And the, the idea is that, you know, one of them will be affecting the other. But, but you, early on, you guys came up with a kind of a quick fix for that, right? Yeah. Don't use the middle one. Yeah, that's the answer. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like leaving a space at a dinner table between two people that are going to be fighting with each yeah, other. You know, yeah, leave yeah. an empty chair there. Yeah. So there's three clock outputs, and we use clock zero and clock two, not clock not clock one. one. Right. Uh, and that I think takes care of it. The other thing was the use of the SMA, those neat little SMA connectors. Which, when you first told me about it, I said, Ah, connectors. We don't need no stinking connectors. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just solder that. That coax in there, that'll be fine. But you advised me to use the connectors. So we have these two little neat SMA connectors, gold-plated. God, they better be gold-plated because they cost, like they're made out of gold. <laughs> <laughs> they, cost, they cost almost as much as the, as the, as the SI-5351 yeah, board. Yeah. Really, they do. Yeah. And um, nah, about 250 each, yeah. something like that. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, put those in there. And I, you know, I, I, haven't, I haven't rigged this whole thing up. I hope to have it receiving this weekend. But um, when I look at it on the scope, okay, I see one signal coming out of the one port, the other signal coming out of the other port, and they don't seem to be affecting each other. So, so far, so good. Now, I know you've, got, you've even actually gone the extra mile on this whole phase noise thing, and I don't intend to go that extra mile <laughs> <laughs> unless I really, really have to. Yeah, yeah. I've left some space on the board, but what's the extra mile, Pete? Well, uh, someone concluded that if you actually... Uh, create the VFO frequency or LO frequency at four times, at four times, 
say for instance you you needed an LO signal at uh, 30 megahertz, you would actually uh, create that signal at 120 megahertz, and then using a 74 AC 74, you divide that signal back down to 30. So the theory is that the phase noise is slightly worse at 120 megahertz, four times 30, than it is at 30. But when you divide it down by generating it, it's actually less than what you would have directly at 30. So the uh, SI5351 is good up to 160 megahertz, which essentially says if you did the four routine, that's all the way up to 40 megahertz. You had a nine megahertz IF, that's that LO could work all the way up through 10 meters. So I have done that, and and it works perfect. So uh, if and the formula which we got from Allison, by the way, is uh, <clears throat> 10 times the log of four, which is the four division, equals six dB. So you get a six dB improvement in phase noise by going. Uh, the the route where you do generate it at four times and then divide it down. Now there's an advantage to dividing it down. You get quadrature outputs. Yeah. So if you want to do some SDR type stuff, you actually get a bonus <laughs> because the 74 74 will produce the IQ outputs. So right. there's some yeah. there's some interesting things about that. But where I would see maybe phase noise is if you're running that in 160 megahertz directly into some kind of mixer, you might see something. <laughs> but we're not doing yeah. that. We're not, no, we're, not we're not running two meters. We're we're running no. we're running here in the HF range and I, I think I think you're gonna have the, the atmospheric noise is going to be a bigger problem than phase noise. Well I'm gonna try to keep it simple and I'm gonna run it straight out of the SI fifty three fifty one. One going right into the uh, to the BFO, the other one going right into the VFO mixer, the other one going into the VFO mixer, and we'll, we'll see how that works. I have um, Thomas's LA3PNA's um, uh, software loaded up into it right now, and it's all ready to go. I have the connectors. I got the connectors from Jameco, like you. Well, I got the connectors, the SMA connectors from uh, Adafruit, and then I got the, the, the little cables with the SMA connectors already on them from Jameco, like you recommended, and I got... I think I got the two foot model, so I can just chop them. Yeah, it works perfect. Yeah. Yeah, and so that'll that'll connect up to the SBL ones, and and this thing is it's it's almost almost ready to go. So, um, all right. So areas area fifty three fifty one. Don't be afraid. You know, it, a lot of what you're hearing. Uh, is, yeah. It's not really all that uh, that scary, and uh, so I mean I mean it's not not really been verified. I think it's going to work. I think they're all going to work. I think. We'll, we'll have a lot of fun with these things, and it's really just—it's very cool to have this one little chip taking care of almost all, all, all of the frequency generation needs for uh, an SSB transceiver. So, uh, thank you for pushing me in this direction, Mr. Giuliano. Yes, and I wanted to just um, before we move off this, just make a comment here. I, I followed up with an email to Wes and to Bob, uh, asking them: Has anybody used this in? In a transceiver, you know the the, the T is the, the T is in the transceiver, and uh, <clears throat> so their um, their comment back to me was that uh, Wes said he didn't know of anybody who actually used it in the transceiver, and Bob 
said, yeah, check the YouTube, and it happens to be our friend Tom Hall, <laughs> the bit, bit of BitX. Yeah. And uh, I, I uh, emailed, and a matter of fact, a great video. You can you can see the TIA amplifiers in, in operation there. And, and I emailed Tom and said, well, you know, uh, what, what's happening? So he said he's actually got that working, but then he moved on, took all the parts and components, so it's it's not a complete transceiver. So we may have <laughs> the first two. The first two. <laughs> you got the first one because you've already made a contact. Yeah, with yeah. So we're we're on the leading edge here, Bill. <laughs> Yeah, I think I, I, you know, it's it's not it's not that much difficult. It's that not that much more difficult. Uh, the the circuit is is only a bit more complicated, but that that termination insensitivity gives you a lot of a lot of advantages. Yeah, just just a word here. You you mentioned about having three transistors. Actually, two of those transistors are a buffer. It's a it's a standard kind of Wes Hayward buffer amplifier, and that's part of the. Part of the, the the reason the whole thing works is that uh, you you get the termination and sensitivity. So two of those are like a DC coupled to each other, and that's what the the other two transistors. But basically, you have the one two N thirty nine zero four amplifier that has a variable well, you know, gain on it. But you know, and I got I just want to mention I got a real uh, kind of a very very strong confirmation of the termination and sensitivity feature because. I um, I'm being a bit more careful on this project, and I'm I'm following all the the admonitions about keeping notes as you go along. So before I even started, I went down to the to the to the to the to the store and got myself a little marble notebook. That's specifically for this project. So it, I just start, and and every time I finish a stage, I write it up. I, I write out the test results. I so what I was doing, I was measuring the gain on each of the stages on the TIA amps. And I just I use the eighty ninety eight fifty signal generator with um, the eighty seven C code in it, um, and that uh, generates the, the the nine megahertz signal that I was putting through. And I was just doing some some gain measurements to make sure that I was getting the, you know that to make sure the whole thing was working as 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 expected. And at one point I did I, I so I have one scope probe at the input, the other scope probe at the output. And so I'm watching the, the the signal at the input port, and on the output port, I start by measuring with no load connected to it at all, so completely open circuit at the other end. And I'm watching the input signal, and then I change and I put uh, a 50 ohm resistor across the output port at the other end, and I watch the voltage on the input port. You'd expect it to change, right? If there was a sig- significant, it stayed exactly where it was. Termination and sensitivity. It's a beautiful thing, Pete. Yep, absolutely. It's 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 not a social disorder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Hey, listen. You, you got you always have to remind me of something. You, shameless you're sailing, commerce division. There you go. All right. You're almost sailing in your duties here. The shameless commerce division. Um, we have a kind of a different shameless commerce division this week because we're only pushing one product this week, and that is the. Uh, a, a, I finally wrote a book that is actually good to go to the beach with. The first book I wrote about Central America and all that, no, definitely. <laughs> I wouldn't take it to the beach. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote it. <laughs> Solder Smoke, yeah, okay, you can take it to the beach. It's a good book for the beach if you're in our kind of But you'd have to have your calculator or slide rule with you. Uh, yeah, I know, yeah. yeah. Us and Them, however, is a good book to take to the beach. For you or for your spouse. 
a lot of the a lot of the spouses uh, are you know they they overhear you listening to this crazy program that we have. A lot of people like the kind of the the travel log that we discuss from time to time. Us and them is the book for you. Anyway, it's it's good for the beach. You can get it on Kindle. You can get it in paper form. You can get it from Lulu. You can get it from Amazon. Uh, all kinds of different ways. And if you want to find it, just take a look at the blog, soddersmoke.blogspot.com. There's a picture of it on the upper left. You'll see uh, Elisa, the kids, and I standing there. You know where that picture is, Pete? Ischia. Ooh. It's on the island of Ischia. Ooh. And we, we picked it because it looked really foreign. It's the books about our 10 years in Europe and, uh, and, and all the fun we had and things we learned and uh, how it kind of changed our our view of the world. So uh, that is what we're pushing on the Shameless Commerce Division. Go ahead onto the site, and you'll, you'll find it at soddersmoke.blogspot.com. A good book to take to the beach for listeners of Solder Smoke and their family members. Absolutely. That concludes this week's edition of the Shameless Commerce, Commerce Division. Division. Yep. Now what are we going to talk about? Oh, a rule of thumb. we got to have rules of thumb here. You, you know what rule of thumb means? Tell me. Okay, well, the urban legend has it that in England, you, a man was permitted to beat his wife so long as that the, the stick he was using was no bigger in diameter <laughs> than his thumb. So as, as long as it was that equal that or less, you could beat your wife. But beyond that, if it was bigger than the rule of thumb you were in trouble with the, with the law. So that's what the rule of thumb is about. I wish you hadn't told me that. <laughs> now I'm not going to be able to use that term anymore. All right. Words of wisdom. <laughs> we have some words of wisdom here. And I, I want to put in a plug for QST Magazine. I, I, uh, occasionally we, uh, we hear comments about QST that it's not technical enough and it's too, you know, contesty and too DX-ish and all that. But... I have been going recently to work. I always take a ham radio magazine, stick it under my arm. By the way, you've you got to be really careful. We'll, we'll talk about this in a minute, about what you read on the, the Washington metro system. But um, I've, lately I've been taking recent issues of QST, and I have to say I've found some stuff that I really like in there. There's a lot of, you know, it's, it's a magazine for all radio amateurs, so there's stuff in there that might not be of interest to real hardcore home brewers, but occasionally there is, and I've, I've found some, some interesting stuff. There's one column there that I like quite a bit, and it's it's the Doctor column by uh, Joel Hallis, W1ZR, and he's got some really good stuff in there. And he came up with, we won't call it a uh, rule of thumb anymore. <laughs> he came up with some words of wisdom, kind of a mnemonic device, so a way to remember something, and it, it has to do with sideband inversion. This is another one of the the pathologies that we as members of this very elite and esoteric fraternity worry about. Termination insensitivity and sideband inversion. <laughs> it's almost like Dilbert's doctor told his mother, I'm sorry, ma'am, your son is <laughs> exhibiting signs of sideband inversion. Yeah, 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 there you go. Sideband inversion is the kind of thing that when you build an SSB rigs and you haven't really thought about it in a lot and you haven't worked on it, all of a sudden you can discover this by yourself. <laughs> Because yeah, and I, this happened to me. You 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 pick the, the the you pick the IF. You build the filter, and then you put you you set up the little uh, your your little VFO and you plug that in, and you're all set to go. And you fire it up on 20 meters, and it sounds like everybody's on the wrong sideband. 
And it shouldn't be because you've got you set it up, and then you forget that you have set up a situation that creates the dreaded sideband inversion. Joel Hallis explains this to us. I I was up until now. Every time I wanted to figure this out, I was drawing little charts showing where the sideband was, whether it was above or below, what happened when you subtracted or added. It was kind of laborious. Here's the uh, here's the way to remember what happens, and Joel lays it out very clearly. If you are, you got to think of it two signals. You have one signal that has modulation on it, and one signal that does not. The modulation signal is the one that's coming in from the antenna. The one that does not, or or or, or the one that does not is the one that's coming from your local oscillator. If you're subtracting the signal with modulation from the signal that doesn't have modulation, you get sideband side inversion. And, you, and, that, and then, of, that of course, that determines where you place the, uh, the BFO frequency. So thanks for squaring that away for us, uh, Joel. And I, I really liked it because Joel admitted that he himself occasionally got turned around by this and, occasionally, and apparently did it once in a column for, for QST. I got turned around by it when I was talking about talking to Steve Smith about the old 9 megahertz, 5 megahertz uh, scheme that was used in the early sideband rigs. I got it completely backwards because I was thinking in terms of a 9 megahertz generator with a 5 megahertz VFO. It's got to be the other way around if you want to work. Anyway, interesting stuff, and thanks for that. Uh, thanks, Joel, and thanks to the, to the QST ARRL guys. A, a postscript here? Yes, sir. We have that problem. You go into your code on the SI5351, put a different number in there, you're yeah. fixed. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you know, that's why I knew this was going to happen a lot. So that's why I put a USB port on the front yeah, panel yeah. Of, the, of the new rig. Just change the number. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a lot easier now. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> he had to get that. He had to get yeah, that plug yeah, in there. Yeah. The, 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 okay, all right. Now it's time to eat to talk about another malady. This, we seem to be talking about maladies and social pathologies. We're going to call this segment Dongle Madness. Yeah, there you go. I'm, I kind of alluded to this before. Um, you know, um, there's a, a, a component that we've been experimenting with and working with, and it's referred to kind of in general as a dongle, right? Now, um, and a lot of what's being discussed involves, it's an electronic component, we'll, we'll talk about it, we'll explain it in a minute, but you have to modify the dongle, so there, there's a need for dongle modification, and believe me, you have to be really careful if you're riding along on the Washington Metro, and you have in your hand an article that says across the top, dongle modification, <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> your, fellow, your fellow travelers start start like kind of inching away from yeah, you in the yeah, seat. Yeah. Now, they don't want to be sitting too yeah, close to the yeah. guys reading the dongle yeah, modification. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds like a lot of those emails that you get, yeah, you know? You know, you get, you get those emails, you get some of them from Nigeria, and then you get some others that are sort of related to dongle modification. That's not what we're talking about right, here, Pete. Right, right. No. The dongle is a, a little, it's like a USB we got to get a new name for this thing. Call it a USB stick. It's like a USB stick. It's like a little memory stick. It's about the same size. We keep talking about thumbs, too. It's about the size of your thumb. It's like everything's about the size of your thumb. That's a rule of thumb. <laughs> Everything tastes like chicken. It's everything the size of your thumb. Yeah. All right. 
Anyway, it's about the size of your thumb, and it's got in it an amazing bit or several little bits of electronics. The, the heart of it is an analog-to-digital converter. That's the most important part. And what, will, what this little bit of electronic magic will do is you plug it into the USB port on your computer, and then you download for free software that really does the software-defined radio processing. It turns your computer into a processor that does software-defined radio. So, um, and it does it at HF, VHF, and UHF. So conceivably, and, and I've actually done this, you could take your antenna, bring it in, and connect it right up to the, to the input pins on this analog-to-digital converter. This little dongle device converts that into a digital stream it goes into your computer where it is processed using the processing power of your computer driven by the software-defined radio program that you just downloaded for free. And now you get on your screen this panoramic display, and it could cover several megahertz of the band. You can look and you can see all these signals. I have set it up so I have the entire 40-meter band on the screen <coughs> from... You know, you can see the CW signals off on the left and the uh, the AM signals way up at the top of the band and everything in between. You can click on them. You can listen to them. You can widen the passband, narrow the passband. Really amazing when you think about it. There's other things you could do. That's the, that's the first round of stuff that we did. We, um, we got the dongle, and this was all kind of – I was alerted to this by an article in Sprat Magazine. We talked about this bit in the last uh, podcast, so I don't want to cover the same ground, but – uh, last time I think we talked, I had not yet modified <laughs> the dongle. Um, out of the box, the dongle will cover from 24 megs all the way up to 1.7 gigahertz. But uh, I didn't modify it. But then I went and did the modification. So now mine will cover the entire HF spectrum, but it'll only go from 0 to 30, 0 to 29 megs, megahertz. And that's what I'm using now. So um, amazing stuff. Uh, and an amazing technology, 13 bucks shipped from China. I know you have one, but you haven't. Yeah, you haven't yeah, just haven't, haven't had time. Um, I, um, just, just a couple things about what I've done with this thing. I, I, like I just described, that was sort of the direct application, direct connection to the antenna. Uh, but there's another way you could use it. You could tap the IF of a receiver and then display the IF uh, the, 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 like prior to the crystal filter or prior to the filtering, you could just take the IF of, um, of a receiver and display that on the screen. Now, the advantage of that is you're, you're, you're using the kind of the front-end selectivity of the receiver to cut out a lot of the stuff that you don't want to get through. So I was look, I'm sitting here in the shack with the dongle in my hand, and I'm looking around, and what, am I, what receiver am I going to tap? And there it's in front of me the Drake 2B. This poor Drake 2B has been subjected to a lot of kind of digital experimentation and modification. So then I said, all right, you know, I know the Drake 2B's got two IFs in it, one at 455 KCs and one at 50 KCs, double conversion, dual conversion receiver. How am I going to tap into the 455 KC IF? Ha! Huh. The Q multiplier connection on the back 
It's amazing. I think I, I, I heard about this because I Googled around a little bit, and I found somebody else who had actually done it. All you have to do is tap into that little Q multiplier connection on the back. <laughs> you got to use the right pins because two of them are for signal. Two of them are for high voltage for the tubes in the Q multiplier. <laughs> you, you don't you don't want to stick them into the wrong. Yeah, thing. yeah. Label the pins. Label the pins. You could be smoking your dongle in <laughs> more ways than one. <laughs> Oh man, this is not my fault. Yeah. It's not my fault. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, if you get it into the right pins, I built up a little um, uh, amplifier, a little source follower FET amplifier, because you don't you don't want to present low impedance to the uh, to the 455 KCIF pin. You want to present a high impedance so that the Drake 2B will continue to function pretty much as it should, as it always does. But you want to be able to, to sample that IF and send it down through the dongle. But it is really cool because I'll have a signal there and I'll be listening to it on the Drake 2B. And now I can see it on the screen. I can take a look. I can take a look at how wide, how narrow. Uh, it, it's just, it's a very, very neat feature. I've only begun to kind of, no pun intended, tap into the possibilities here. But uh, there's a lot of applications and a lot. I know you're, you're interested in using it as, as test gear. Because in a certain sense, it's not really, it's not nearly as good as a spectrum analyzer, but it does give you the opportunity to take a look at the spectrum of incoming signals and and outgoing, your outgoing signals too. So well, you know, as you talk there, Bill, there's no reason why you can't t- t- tap into that Yesu filter at nine megahertz. Oh yeah, sure. As a matter of fact, when I'm on this one, I intend when I do the the back panel connectors, I'm going to put an extra BNC in there. So when you're on 40 meters, you can say, "I'm looking at you." <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at you. So. Yeah, you know, I, I'm seeing some energy up there at uh, yeah, you know. Yeah, there you go. Personal, yeah. man. I wonder yeah. what's what's wrong with your rig. Yeah. It's it's really it's unacceptable in this yeah, modern era. Ten thousand dollar radio you got. <laughs> yeah, I mean, turn up your turn down the compression. Yeah, yeah. I love up it. Yeah, I, I, I knew you'd like yeah, it. Yeah, I love it. I love it. But I'm going to, you know, now I modify it. I, bought, I spent the 13 bucks on this thing, and I modified it. And, man, they, they talk, at one point they talk, Tony Fishpool and the others in Sprat talk about soldering to these two little pins right on the analog-to-digital converter. I took one look at that thing and said, oh, no way. I'm not going to be able to do it. So I lost the ability to handle both VHF and HF on this dongle. But they're only thirteen bucks. Yeah. Buy another one for UHF VHF. So that's, I'm going to buy another one because ah, here QST another QST plug, Pete. Um, in QST, I've been seeing all kinds of cool applications in the VHF UHF world. You know, we got we got to got to keep doing different things. You know, HF transceivers are fun, SSB transceivers are fun, but there's other stuff out there. And I was reminded of that because I've seen recently in QST articles on how you could use these dongles for uh, monitoring meteor scatter. Really cool. You um, Just to go through it real quickly, you, you find, like in a neighboring city, the carrier frequency for a TV transmitter. The kind of, you know, a transmitter that you would not normally be able to hear because it's over the horizon. So for me, I guess, if I found out, if I found the... Um, the VHF or UHF carrier frequency, probably VHF, for um, a TV station, say, in Baltimore. And then I put the dongle on that frequency, and I know that meteors are going to come through, or we're in a period where there might be a meteor storm. If 
I start seeing pings on that frequency, there's got to be something creating the path between me and Baltimore, and it's probably those little bits of rock that are coming in. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, if it's a big rock, <laughs> get under the <laughs> desk. <laughs> the other thing that they're using for is uh, is for satellites. You know, I always read about these, these satellites. They're putting up the CubeSats and all that. Very interesting stuff. But I never have any receive capability way up into the VHF, UHF range. With the dongle, you can go up to 1.7 gigahertz. Suddenly, you've got the capability. And I think it would be fun to I, – I used to be big into satellites, and so this, this kind of has got me tempted to go back in that area. And finally, one thing that I saw that was really cool, you know, the um, airplanes now are automatically – they're transmitting their position, the, uh, coded, coded transmissions. As they fly along, they're just constantly beeping out their precise location. And they're doing it at VHF and UHF. And I'm I'm in the traffic pattern here for both uh, Reagan National and and Washington Dulles Airport. So this plane's over all the time, and you can download some software that displays a map, and then you you basically take the dongle and the dongle's receiving the the position reports from the aircraft, and you can display it. And they, they even you can even make it look like a radar. Wow. Thirteen, I, I 13 want bucks. Thirteen bucks. Thirteen bucks. Thirteen bucks. There you go. All right. So uh, anyway, these are the these are the things. So, so are you going to work on your dongle? Yeah, yeah. Coming coming up. Come up. Coming up. All right. Coming up. All right. I think it's, it's great stuff. Take a look at that spread article. Um, and we we got a couple of videos on the blog. What else we got, Pete? What else we going to talk about? Uh, Elecraft. Elecraft. Yeah. They got a new rig. Yes. The KS3. Yes. Except they unveiled. They don't show a front front panel. It's the back panel. Really? Oh, you see, I didn't see the front panel. So has anything changed? And I think it's by design that they only show you the back panel. Yeah, but go ahead. Anyway, I, I just took a quick look because I heard about it. I heard it was unveiled in, uh, in Dayton. But, it, you know, it's it, advanced stuff and uh, exciting stuff, I'm sure, coming out of uh, the uh, the geniuses out there in, in Ellicraft. Well, Well, Eric is one of the guest speakers. Yeah. So he probably is going to talk about the... What they did, but basically it looks like they uh, they souped it up. I mean that that was what you mentioned in your email. Uh, one of the things they do is I think they bypass the internal antenna tuner. Mm-hmm. So for weak signals, you're where you have a matched antenna, you don't have anything in between that can be masking the signal and, and uh, some better performance. So uh, there's some boards that you can get in the new, and I think it's called the K3S. There's some boards you can put in an existing K3, but some of the boards are unique to the K3S. So, wow. uh, whole bunch of whole bunch of technology out there. Wonderful stuff. Wonderful. You and stuff. I were talking. I, I saw something. You know, now this is the other advantage of going through QST because you become <coughs> more aware of the products that are out there. I even like to look at the ads. Yeah. You know, Gene Shepard. <laughs> Gene Shepard used to say that when he was a kid, he was so happy to get QST magazine. You know, of course, in the days before the internet, this was like the you got one dose of ham radio news each month. Yeah, and it was from yeah. And he said he was so into it as a kid that he read every single ad in QST magazine. He said he even read the ads about the grommets. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and he didn't even know, and he didn't even know what grommets were. <laughs> but uh, I, I've been looking at the ads at the back of QST, and you you, you realize that there's a quite a cottage a set of cottage industries out there. 
coming up with all kinds of cool stuff that we could use for homebrew rigs or modifying commercial rigs. And I saw that thing where they talked about a, a, an improved or larger heat sink for the KX3, correct? Right. It's, it's from a company called Pro Audio. And uh, it's uh, it's supposedly has 400% more area for heatsink. And I I suspect if you used the KX3 like on RTTY, where where the duty cycle is quite high, you're probably gonna gonna heat that thing. So that would certainly make some some sense to do that. Uh, by the way, while you're at it, go back and look at your QST. There's a neat company. That's that's a follow-on. They're using the logo. Remember the national radio logo? National, you know. The na- I did. I saw it. It looks similar. Yeah, yeah. and it has the little two tri- receivers. Oh, I saw those. Yeah. Don't they look cool? Yeah, I'm, I'm saying, hmm. It, it was eye-catching. Yeah. The national thing really caught my eye, Yeah, too. and I'm saying, wow. Why don't they build a transceiver out of that? That's the thought that went through my mind. You know, you got most of it there now. You know, I know, I know. It's uh, it's cool stuff. Hey, one thing I wanted to mention. I was just looking at my list of stuff that we wanted to talk about. But uh, talking about my reading on the trains, I still every once in a while it's a sprat that goes under my arm as I go out the door. And the other day I grabbed one from the pile, and it was from 1998. And um, I'm going out the door, and there's an article in there. I'm flipping through it. And there's an article in there, I couldn't believe it, about the AD9850 DDS chip. Here I am thinking that we're kind of cutting edge-ish or close to it here with our use of this digital chip. Now I'm reading an article from Spread 1998 about it, pointing out that the chip was introduced in 1997. So some of this stuff, even though we're just sort of starting to play with it, at least I'm starting to play with it, I know you've been doing it for a while, but... It's uh, It's been around a while. But the other lesson I came from this was think about the the long-lasting impact of articles in ham radio magazines. I'm sure that when those guys put that sprat together, when George Dobbs and the team put that sprat together back in 1998, they never thought that in 2015 some guy would be on a train under the Potomac River yeah. <laughs> reading the article about the AD9850. So, Three cheers to the Sprat guys. Three cheers to you, Pete, for all the articles in QQ. Three cheers to the guys who put QST together, performing a tremendous public service here for the ham radio community. Yeah. You, you know what held up the AD9850? First what? of, you could, you could go to analog devices and request a free sample of the AD90. Yeah. I did. I saw that, Q, I saw that Sprat article, and I, I, I got it. But what was scary was this guy took a 40-pin header, I think, the one article I saw. You turn you turn the AD9850 upside down. You take this real fine wire, and, oh, man. and, you, and you solder to each one of the pins. And I got the AD. I still have it. And I looked at that, and I said, man, that looks that looks too hard. That looks too hard to do, you know, something that you're going to need like a microscope. So I still got the parts. But what what was the breakthrough is all those boards from China. The six dollar Chinese board. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's, so there you, yeah, that, you that just plug it. it. You plug it in. Crystal and everything on there. Yeah. Oh man, that was that was great. There you go. That, so there, that, that's an interesting thing. You know, see so the the chips around for a while, <clears throat> but the the kind of the easy packaging on a board didn't come out until more recently. Yeah, I mean that that's the problem is unless you have some very sophisticated equipment. 
like a microscope, <laughs> steady yeah. hands, fine tip solder yarns. You're never going to be able to to implement that. I mean, I just didn't feel comfortable. Like you were saying, soldering to the pins on the dongle. <laughs> oh man, that, that, that's the way I felt about the ninety-eight. I still have it. I, I may, oh, wow. I may, you know, get enough courage <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to try that. But but it just was very very complex to to be able to. And then I think. One of the articles, the guy was selling a pick, so uh, a uh, pick 16 F84, something like that program. I actually bought one, so that you, because I mean, once you had the 9850, you needed the controller to make it work. So that, that was the problem. All right, so there we go. There we have it. It's been around a while, but it got to get packaged better. Pete, we're at about the one minute, one hour, twelve minute mark. <clears throat> and at this point, many of our listeners have to get out of the car and actually go to work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, I, I was just looking back. We have covered all kinds of things that could be considered maladies this week. Yeah. Sideband inversion. Yeah. Dongle modification. Termination and sensitivity. Termination and sensitivity. <laughs> AD fifty three fifty one urban legend disorder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a scary world out yeah, there. Yeah. All related to the underlying illness, Dilbert's disease. Yes, yes. The knack. The knack, yes, absolutely. We have it. <laughs> yeah. Accept it. Well, well you, you know, Bill, just kind of as a capstone here, there are just so many things that are on the market available to us. that I, I don't know where to put my time. Like, for instance, I bought a pair of RF transceivers, 915 megahertz. Ten bucks delivered for two of them from China, so and they're driven by Arduino. So I'm trying to develop a, a remote control operation so I can operate the radios in the garage when it's hot or cold from my office. I just don't have the time. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just too, there's too many things on the bench. There's just not enough time in the day to get all these things. Man, it's it's a great time to be a radio analyst. Oh yeah, so much technology and so inexpensive. I mean, thirteen dollar dongles, ten dollar transceivers. You know, it's unbelievable. It's really great, great stuff. Anybody who says it's it's, it's too hard to homebrew now because Radio Shack closed, it's yeah, it's, it's, yeah. They're just no, it's not right. It's it's, it's a lot. E it's it's a great time to do it. Pete Giuliano, thanks very much. You bet. For the uh, for the company and for sending all the parts out here, all this stuff. I feel like this radio that's this just transceiver is. Is almost self-assembling here with the assistance from Newberry Park. <laughs> Just punch the start. I said there are four steps. First, you get a cup of coffee. Second, you load the machine. Third, you push the start no. button. Fourth, when no. the coffee's done. <laughs> no, first you send your kids a mechanical engineering <laughs> yeah, yeah. for you. That's the first one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thanks a lot, Pete. You bet. Seven threes from the left coast. Seven three from Northern Virginia. <laughs> Ooh, that's awesome. The Solder Smoke Podcast is produced once or twice a month using roadkill computers in an electronics workshop somewhere in the wilds of Northern Virginia. The podcast is available via iTunes and directly from our website, soldersmoke.com. Our blog, the Solder Smoke Daily News, is at soldersmoke.blogspot.com. Send email to soldersmoke, that's one word, at yahoo.com. Solder Smoke is listener-supported. And there are many ways you can help keep the podcast going. Please spread the word. Let your friends know about Solder Smoke, the podcast, and our blog. 
put links to the podcast and the blog on your websites. Buy a copy of the critically acclaimed book, Solder Smoke, Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics, available from lulu.com. Begin all your visits to Amazon via the Amazon link on our blog page. In this way, Solder Smoke gets a commission from anything you buy on Amazon. Buy some of our attractive Solder Smoke t-shirts, coffee mugs, and bumper stickers at the Solder Smoke store at cafepress.com. If you have a small business, consider advertising on the podcast or on the blog. Our rates are reasonable and our staff is friendly. If none of this appeals to you but you still want to help, well, we have a donation button in the upper left-hand corner of the blog page. However you choose to help, we thank you for your support. Ciao, bravi ragazzi! 